sermon series through Matthew, uh, specifically the Beatitudes. And today we're going to be uh, led by Pastor Kevin Larson. He's going to read to us Matthew 5.9. This is found on page 810 in the Black House few Bibles that are in the, in the pews. Uh, if you're physically able, would you stand as we read about the Matthew 5. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Dear God, we're thankful for this day and for your word. God, we're thankful that your word is living and active and it can move among us. I pray that by your Holy Spirit that we would be encouraged by these words, uh, that you would make us peacemakers, God, that you would um, just bring peace among your people, in your church, and in your world. God, just use us, open our eyes to, to see your goodness and your glory and your word today. I thank you for Pastor Kevin and all of the ways that he leads and disciples our our body. I ask that you would just continue to bless the preparation that he's put into this and that he would just be used by you to speak to our hearts. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome once again. Welcome to some of the moms that have come in to join their kids today. It's good to, good to have you. Um, we're continuing our walk through the book of Matthew, and we're here in what's been known as the Sermon on the Mount, and it kicks off with these words that we see right here in chapter 5, verses 3 through 12, that have long been called the Beatitudes. And that term, again, comes from the Latin word for blessed, and as I shared the, the first day that I introduced them, they really, I think, have two main purposes, and the first is, is that they describe the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So they describe. They show what followers of Jesus are meant to look like, not just what super holy followers of Jesus are supposed to look like, but all of us. They give us a snapshot of what we're meant to be. Not perfectly, no, but increasingly, day by day, by His grace, for His glory alone, but they describe Christ's disciples. Well, this morning we find ourselves on the seventh beatitude. Pastor Jeff next week will conclude with the last one. But we find again that we're called today to be peacemakers, right? And here's the question I want you to think about as we begin. Over the last several years, as you think about the church of Jesus here in America and how we've lived for the world, when it comes to peace, when it comes to unity, have we led the way? Or maybe not. Over the past several years, we've lived in this period of just increasing discord, of significant anxiety. And again, my question, maybe put a different way, is have we, the church, added to that angst? Have we stoked all the anger, or have we pointed the way out of it? Well, I have some thoughts on that, and I'll come back to that later. But today I want us to consider, how does God want us to live as his people here in America today? And what would need to change for us to get to that place? I think both of, the, both of those answers are found here in this single verse here in Matthew 5. And I think there are a couple of things that 
Baptist first makes very clear. And here's the first, the, the most obvious thing. The blessed, this says, lead the way to peace. The blessed lead the way to peace. Notice a couple of things that this verse doesn't say here. It doesn't say blessed are the peace lovers. Right? It's, it's one thing to say that you like peace. It's one thing to say that you even love peace. It's quite a different thing to work for that peace, right? So we can say that we want to see the war stop over in Ukraine. It's another thing to put our money where our mouth is or to perhaps intervene more than that. Jesus here is saying that the blessed, they see a lack of peace and they're moved to do something about it. Here's another thing it doesn't say. It doesn't say blessed are the peacekeepers, right? There's this path that we so often take the one of least resistance, where we try to keep everyone around us happy. We say what people are wanting to hear. Or there's maybe a deep unspoken war that we can perceive, but we don't want to touch that. There's nothing outward going on, so we kind of stay away because that's too much work. But Jesus here says the blessed are willing to wade into the muck and do something about it. Now, these might be the Beatitudes that we live by in our world today. Blessed are the peace fakers, for they will get love from both sides. Blessed are those who don't rock the boat, for they will have an easy-peasy life. I think we're tempted toward those things, especially today. But those don't go nearly far enough to what Jesus calls us to here. They're, they're far too passive. The Lord here, though, calls us to something active. And this is our calling to bring people together. Everyone today, we excel at building fences. We're all running to our corners. We're hurling rocks over those cedar planks on those on the other side. But Jesus calls us to take down those boards and build fences in order to bring people together. We're to be peacemakers. Now, if we're followers of Jesus, it means that we now have peace with God. We do. Now, we don't like to think of things in this way, but the Bible says that apart from Christ, that we're actually enemies of God. But Romans 5 also says that we've been reconciled to God by the death of His Son, in verse 10. Through faith in Jesus, we've been justified. We've been declared righteous by God, and now we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're no longer at war with Him. We're now His friends if we're believers. Through what Jesus has done for us. So now, as the Apostle Paul says elsewhere, Colossians 3.15, we're to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. And this peace we have with God is meant to spill out to those around us. That's our calling as His people. But I want us to think a bit here now about where, about the context for that. We're to go out and make peace both in the church and out in his world. So to start off, if we've experienced this peace between us and God vertically, we're also meant to experience it horizontally between one another and the body of Christ. The book of Philippians, the New Testament of our Bibles, lays out with so much glory what God has done for us in the gospel. And we see that in chapters 1, 2, and 3. But there's a shift in chapter 4 where God, through Paul, shows us what that should mean in our lives, and it starts out this way. Verse 1 of chapter 4. I, therefore... So based on everything I've said before, Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, 
urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So did you catch that? Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So he says, don't create it. Jesus already did that, but maintain it. And this isn't the kind of peacekeeping I was just talking about before. Again, this is an active thing where we help those around us experience this unity that we've all been given in Christ. When that strain or it's threatened by His grace, in His strength, we do what we can to pull people together. The pastor theologian of old, John Owen, once said that we should picture each other as cuts of firewood, and peace is the cord that ties us together, that makes us one. Jesus picks us up together and carries us home, and God wants us to struggle to keep us all tied together in unity. We're called to be peacemakers here among the local church. So as you look around and you see brothers and sisters at, at odds, don't do what's so easy to do. Don't walk away but seek to build bridges to bring people together. And sure, don't do what's so tragic and common and stir things up. Don't gossip. Don't vent to people. Don't tear down one party and build another up. Don't walk away either and ignore a war that's going on. And don't fuel one or start some kind of clash yourself either. And if you see disunity between yourself and another, I want you to be reminded of these, these twin commands that we're going to see as we go forward here in Matthew. First, in chapter 18, Jesus tells us if someone sins against us, we go to them and we share a concern. We don't go to others. We go straight to them. It's only if they don't respond well. If they don't hear us, that we consider roping in others to help. But the point is, we're trying to maintain peace. And that means not nurturing our hurts, letting them turn into bitterness, but sharing those hurts and trying to work them out. Now the same thing travels in the opposite direction. Matthew 5, that we'll get through to in just a few weeks. It tells us this, if we think someone's got an issue with us, we go directly to them also. You know, this is in the, talking about the, the era when there was a sacrificial system. Today, I think it applies as we gather around the Lord's table. We don't just continue to worship and act like there's not anything wrong. The unity of the body of Christ at stake is at stake. The glory of Jesus is under threat. So we go to that brother and sister and we ask them, Hey, have, have I hurt you in some way? Are you and I good? Are we okay? And then we seek to work it out together. That's what peacemakers do. They seek out those they've wronged and those who they perceive have wronged them, and they try to maintain peace. But what happens if we look up and we see two of our brothers or two of our sisters at odds, and would we even get involved in that? You know, today we're told, hey, Mind your own business. Don't involve yourself in that. But this idea of being peacemakers actually communicates the opposite. I love what, what Paul tells the Philippian church to do over in chapter 4 of that letter. He, he speaks of two women that are there in that church that are, are leaders in some way, Euodia and Syntyche. And then he asks a friend who he calls his true companion in verse 3, 
He asks them to help these women, and he says, these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together, help them. Bring them together. Help them work through whatever is going on. That's what being a peacemaker is according to Paul. There's another big way that we seek to work for peace. Back to Ephesians again. In chapter 1, in the first part of chapter 2, God lays out the gospel, how we're now one with him in Christ. But in verse 11 of chapter 2, there's this shift where he talks about how we're now meant to be one together. And he talks there for a bit about Jews and Gentiles. So two groups in that day that couldn't imagine being in the same room together. And Jesus says this, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So those words, they, they apply to us every bit as much today. Whether we're talking black and white, rich, poor, Latino, Asian, old, young, citizen, immigrant. Together, as we come together, we display the beauty of the image of God as diverse people together. And we also display the power of the gospel of God as he brings all those groups to be one. Peacemakers want to see that glory in the midst of the family of God and are willing to pay the price to actually get it. Now, that's here in cars in the local church, or whatever family God might call us into where to work for peace. But there's also a place for this in what we call the universal church. So, local church, some people, sometimes, someplace, universal church, all Christians, all times, all places. So recently, 40-some churches came together here in our city in peace to serve our neighbors through Fort Columbia. And that, as it has been for several years, was just a beautiful picture of the unity of the Church of Jesus, of the peace that we all have as we came together to serve our city. And we should look for ways to do exactly that, to work together, to encourage one another. And if we're rooted in Christ, if we're trusting in what He has done, if we happen to be gathered in different places on Sundays, we're still on the same team, right? Another example, Love Columbia. Christians working together, coming together to meet needs, expressing the unity that we have in Christ. And that's something, that unity that we should seek, struggle even, to maintain together. It's so easy. As hard as it is to believe, to get competitive, even in the church world. To look down on other churches that are here in our city, to resent families of God that may be down the street. You know, people can walk into our doors who've left other churches, and sometimes not in a good way, and we can take them in if we, we wanted to, with no questions asked. Or we can even try to pluck people out of churches acting like we're the ones that truly haven't figured out. But those kinds of behaviors go against what Christ has done. They work against his prayer that we would all be one, just as our triune God is one, so that the world would come to believe in Jesus. That's what John 17 tells us. Jesus prayed that way. How do we care for people in a way that leads to unity in each local church? but also among the church at large, the universal body of Christ. We have to ask those questions and have that move us into action because we're called to be peacemakers. 
Now, that's in the church. But what about another context? What about out in the world, in the city around us? We're called to pursue peace there as well. Now, here's the most basic way that we're meant to be peacemakers, though. If people around us are separated from God, if they are, as the Bible describes it, at war with them, our most basic charge is to guide them to that peace. So over in, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, Paul puts it this way. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Make peace with him, Paul says. So here we're talking about our responsibility to share the gospel with the, those around us. We go around, we call out to people, be reconciled to God. We don't want our neighbors and friends and co-workers to be at odds with God and under his wrath now and forever. So we share the good news with them and we call people into his peace. All around us, if we're looking People are there doing whatever they can to find a peaceful, easy feeling. Relationships, substances, experiences, possessions. We lurch around in different directions, many times, many in the same day, trying to get this feeling of serenity, of tranquility in our soul. But as we said many times last week, as Augustine once put it, our hearts are restless until they find the rest in Jesus. Before we can feel this subjective inner peace that we so much want in our souls, we have to find that objective peace that flows downward from our God through Christ. And that has to be our message where we start with those around us or we're not any kind of peacemakers at all. But beyond that, as we go out into our world, are we the type of people that bring people together or do we end up pushing people apart? Do you help the factions that are tearing apart your office come together, or do you stoke the fires? Do you add to the gossip? Do you jump in the fray and stick up your fists? In your classrooms, maybe in the clubs that you're in, maybe on sports teams that you're a part of, do you try to help people there reach common ground, or are you someone who actually makes things worse? Or do you maybe even avoid the scent of conflict altogether? Today is Mother's Day. I'll brag about my favorite mother, my wife, who works at University Hospital, who can, who at our workplace can get staff to understand patients and their families, and those patients and families to understand and appreciate the staff. She walks right into the fray and helps coworkers in their fighting, and I've seen her walk into PTA after PTA and lead them out of dysfunction into health. That's what we're talking about. Here's the Beatitudes that I think most of us live by today. And they're sad. Blessed are the warmongers, for they shall have the most followers. Blessed are those who stir up trouble, because they will be called influencers. Again, I don't know if we've ever been in a more divided time in this country, at least in my lifetime, and now I've lived a half a century. None of us, I think, expected that we would experience a global pandemic like we have the last couple years. But I don't really know that many of us would be that surprised if we saw in our days another civil war. But as we do life out in our city, as we share lives with others online, 
are we acting as peacemakers or something else? Again, do we build fences or do we tear them down and make them into bridges? But as we talk about calling, I think this actually goes deeper than anything I've said. A passage that's been so important to us over the years, way back to the early days, has been Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7. If you don't remember that, God's people, they find themselves yanked out of the promised land. They're dragged into exile. They're in the enemy territory of Babylon. And if there was any time that they would think that they were justified to just check out and just figure out how to survive, that would be it. But the Lord tells them, no, I want you to invest yourselves and truly seek to thrive. And listen to what he says through Jeremiah in verse 7 of chapter 20. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Here's what he says, basically. Plant roots, first of all, and second, do good. He says, seek the welfare of the city. And that word for welfare, you may know this is actually a rich Hebrew word. Um, you've maybe heard it again. It's the word shalom. And it's often translated as, as peace. It's in the background of this Greek word that we see here in Matthew 5. But it talks about something so much deeper than what we usually think about when we hear the word peace. What's shalom? Here's how Tim Keller describes it. The webbing together of God and man with all creation to create universal flourishing and wholeness. In Psalm 102, God has made the world like a garment with billions of entities interwoven to make up the beauty of all that is created. Sin has come in and torn a hole in the fabric. So catch that image. The fabric of God's creation, torn, messed up by the fall, and seeking shalom, making this kind of peace, is trying to mend it up once again. So we see the brokenness between us and God, between us and each other, even between us and his creation. And we try to, with his strength, bring it into repair. That, at the deepest level, is what peacemakers seek to do. And I would argue that it's that brokenness that's underneath all of those wars that's created all that division. It's what the gospel of Jesus came to undo. It's what his spirit is all about working to fix. And he's using us in our churches, out in our cities, to bring that about, that shalom. And it's what it means to increasingly be peacemakers. So the first thing, again, the blessed lead the way to peace. The blessed lead the way to peace. There's a second thing that we see in this verse. The blessed look like their heavenly father. Right? The blessed look like their heavenly father. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. What does that mean? Here's the even greater news of the gospel. When we become Christians, it's not just that we're not at war with God anymore. It's not just that we become his friends. He brings us, those who are once his enemies, and welcomes us into his home, and we become a part of his family. That means that we're sons and daughters by his grace. We saw this so beautifully when we went through Galatians. In chapter 3, verse 26, it says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So that's what we've been rescued into, his family. He's our father now. But you might be wondering, especially if you're a, a woman, why does he just talk about sons in both of those passages? 
Well, sons are the ones in that day that got the inheritance, right? The only ones. In Christ's church, though, that inheritance goes to the women with the men. But there may be even something else going on here. D.A. Carson says the emphasis here is less about our position than our character. And that, that expression, son of, was common in that day. If we go around and we seek to make peace, it'll be said that we look like our dad. We'll resemble him, and that's what our salvation does. Well, here's what we know about him, right? He's a God of peace. The New Testament repeats that over and over again. First Thessalonians is just an example. As we've seen, he's a God who makes peace himself. And that peace that he makes comes at a great price, right? The life of his son. Colossians 1.20 puts it this way. Jesus reconciles to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is what we know about our God. And as God works in our lives, he makes us look like him, and we're called sons of God. By our Lord himself, that's the main thing, but then also out in the world. People don't have to ask us, who's your daddy? They know the answer. They, they see him in our faces. They hear him in our speech. They feel him in our hugs. And then we go out and we bear his image as redeemed humans, but also as children of our father. As it's put elsewhere that we'll get to soon. It's likely on the next page of your Bible. In chapter 5, verses 43 through 45, we're called to love our enemies and pray for our persecutors. Why is that? What's the result of that? It says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And then there's this line about how God shines his sun. He sends his rain on both the just and the unjust. And what's he saying with that? God is good to his enemies himself. So if we love those who hate us, we will show, we'll bear his image, we'll show that we belong to him. We'll resemble him and we'll, as a result, be called his sons. Well, how does this come about? I've alluded to this before. If we go around making peace, it's because we've been flooded with that peace ourselves, right? We found peace with God. Through his son, the war is over. We now have that inner subjective peace within us. It's reigning in our hearts. And with that, we're also more and more free from pride. Free from pride. Why do we find ourselves in fights? Why do we often avoid conflict? Because of our sinful desires. Because we're thinking about ourselves. That's what James, talk, James talks about in chapter 4. Pride. That, that fuels the opposite of peacemaking. You may remember last week, um, this graphic I put up on the screen, um, how Martin Lloyd-Jones argued that these verses fit together. So he talks about how the first Beatitudes, they express our need, and God carries us up a mountain to where at the top, that we, we feel our hunger and thirst, and then God meets that in us in Christ. And then the rest of the Beatitudes express how we live that out in the city, in the world, among these people. And, but then he talks about how they, they relate to one another, and he argues that this idea that we're meek leads into, is parallel in the organization here with peacemakers. Those who are meek are those who are ready to make peace. 
Again, what keeps us from peace is pride, a love of self. It turns us into warmongers because we're constantly fighting for honor. It's also what it makes us peacekeepers because we fear so often not making anyone mad. Our God makes us less and less about ourselves, more and more about others, more and more meek, and more and more as a result about peace. And with that, more and more ready to suffer. Because peace comes at a cost. Right? It comes at the cost of His Son, and it costs us our lives as well. Because to go out and make peace here in our church, out in our world, it often costs us it seems like every one of those peaceful, easy feelings. It leads to hurt and anxiety and fear. It makes people mad. It's often very misunderstood. We're going to get into this more as we gather next week. But if we're going to look like our Father, that's our path just as much. Well, forgive another basketball illustration, but it's NBA playoff time, and I know some of you are enjoying that at least, but there may be no player in the history of the league more known for his temper and erratic behavior than the man formerly known as Ron Artest. I don't know if you've heard that name. He actually won an NBA championship back in 2010 with the Lakers. He was named an NBA All-Star back in 2004 with the Pacers. But what's he, what's he known for? He's known far more for all the technical fouls and for starting the biggest fight in NBA history that came to be known as the Malice at the Palace. He started this, this fight with the players on the court, the opposing team, and then he even ended up going into the crowd and brawling with the fans. It's just legendary. In 2011, though, he surprisingly, inexplicably, just overnight, decided to change his name to Meta World Peace. Right? Meta World Peace. What a name, right? You know, it, we might have seen after that maybe him calming himself down a little bit, maybe because of aging, but you, you read about it, it seems like, for the most part, he kept up some of the same fighting behavior. But perhaps he took on that title just hoping in some way he would be able to rise up and live up to that name. Well, sadly, I think this is somehow, some, often the way the world views us. We may be called children of peace, but we don't live up to it at all. But here's where the hope is, church, is that God gives us that title, and then through His Spirit, He grows us into it. So like children, we mature day by day, little by little, until suddenly, this may or not, may not be a bad thing for you know, human children, but we look in the mirror, and wow, we look like our dad. Before I close here, just a few thoughts about application. Uh, I first want to encourage you to think about out in the world. Who are those around you who don't know Jesus as Lord? Do you really believe that there is peace that's only found in Christ? And how can you guide them toward that peace? Think about the spaces in which God has placed you. Maybe your workplace. Maybe you're an organization that you're a part of. Where is the lack of shalom? What's broken? And how can you be an agent of peace and serve to bring people together? Think about how you talk about issues here in our divided world. How can you and I not contribute to the fighting, but instead lead people out of 
Again, what a divided time we find ourselves in. As you interact out the streets, as you post things online, how can you be a peacemaker? Now, I'm not a peacekeeper. I wish I had time to go in to just the implications of speaking the truth at points or, or pursuing justice and how that will often ruffle feathers. But not just a peacekeeper, a peacemaker. Certainly, though, not a war maker. We have enough of those. And Christians may have to repent as much as anyone for that, especially online. But Jesus calls us to something so much greater to peacemaking. Second, think about what's around you in the body of Christ. There's been so much division among these people in America. How can you be one who brings people together and doesn't push people apart? Who around you is different from you? Is anyone around you different from you? How can you get to know them? How can you tear down a fence and build a bridge? Think about another church that you know about here in town. How can you actively pray for them? In what way might you be able to serve them? How might you be able to celebrate what God is doing in their midst and be thankful that his universal church is so rich and diverse? Think about a relationship that you know that is broken. Maybe someone you're hurt by or maybe feels hurt by you. Maybe a couple of members that you know are at odds. How can you hear God's word and be a peacemaker for him there? Over the years, I've seen God working over and over in this way, and I've been thankful that we've largely, in our time, had a culture of peace. What can you do to help us maintain that? I want you to picture the husband and wife. They're, they're babbling in divorce court. Um, they're yelling back and forth across the aisle. They're next to their attorneys, and you have a frightened child there, taking it all in, overflowing with tears, doesn't know what to do, she walks over, grabs her mom's hand, and begins tugging her, pulling on her toward the center. And then suddenly she, she finds a way to, to reach over and grab her dad's hand and start doing the same until she pulls them together. They're holding hands, and somehow they're snapped out of their stupor. That's the calling, friends, of peacemakers. It's what he calls us to do. Hear how John Piper summarizes this passage. He says, God is a peace-loving God and a peacemaking God. The whole history of redemption, climaxing in the death and resurrection of Jesus, is God's strategy to bring about a just and lasting peace between rebel man and himself, and then between man and his fellow man. God's children have the character of their father. What he loves, they love. What he pursues, they pursue. You can know his children by whether they are willing to make sacrifices for peace the way God does. Back when I kicked off this series in Matthew, I laid out this theme, Our King, His Kingdom. I tried to make the, the, the case that we so easily follow after other kings and try to build other kingdoms. But what is our king known for? What is his kingdom known for? Peace, right? He's called the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9, 6. When those angels sung to the shepherds back at his birth, they said, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. Before his death on the cross, Christ told his disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Following his resurrection from the dead, he greeted those same followers with the, same, with the familiar Jewish greeting. We see in Luke 24, peace to you. 
or as it's translated on the door of the new bagel shop downtown, Shalom y'all, that's what Jesus greeted them and said. <laughs> Peter the Apostle, the rest of the early church that came preaching, it says in Acts 10, good news of peace through Jesus Christ. Jesus, our King, is about peace. He brings us peace. What's his kingdom like? That greeting peace to you again, shalom, y'all, expresses this hope of God's people through the ages of perfect shalom. This hope that one day the brokenness that was brought about by the fall will be repaired. Everything will be made right again. That's what the new heavens and the new earth are going to be like. That's what his kingdom is going to be known for. Perfect justice and peace. When Jesus, Isaiah 2, 4, will judge the nations, and will beat our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks. And when nation shall not lift up sword against nation, and we will not learn war anymore. When these images from Isaiah 11 come to pass, starting in verse 6, the, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fat and calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the kingdom that we look forward to, Carus. It's what our king has called us to. It's what he's died to bring about. So the question is, is, is that, is he, what we're all about? And as I started out this morning, have we moved people toward that peace or away from it? Again, I think too much as of late. I don't know if we, the Church of America, have been about those things. I think we failed in many ways. But back to the beginning, I reminded you of one purpose of the Beatitudes, that they describe the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But I think there's another important thing they're meant to do, and that's second, to drive us to the kingdom of heaven. Remember, they, the Beatitudes show us that we're all poor in spirit, and they move us to run to him to hunger and thirst for righteousness. They tell us how far short we fall, just how much we need a Savior, and then we run to Him for help, and then He begins to work these Beatitudes in us. So no, we've not been the peacemakers. We should be. I haven't. You haven't. But we know the Prince of Peace, the one who brought us peace with God, the one who changes war makers and peacekeepers into actual peacemakers. His Father has made us His own. He's refashioned us into His Son's image. Well, as I asked at the start, how does God want us to live as people here today? What would need to change to get us to that place? Well, we've been seeing that, that God wants us to be peacemakers. How do we get there? By realizing more and more each day that He's made peace with us, that we're now called His sons, and just how incredibly blessed we are in Him. The main point. The summary I see in this verse. Those who sacrifice to bring God shalom experience the fullness of his favor because they bear the image of their heavenly Father. Let's trust him to work in us and through us toward that. Carlos, let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you have. 
to make us one with you and work in us by your spirit, Lord, that we would be willing to do what it takes to um, bring unity with those around us. Um, make Horus be filled with peace and unity and love. We pray that your church um, across America and throughout the world would as well, and that we would show our sonship and just show how amazing you are through that, Lord. In Christ's name.